Section 2 of the Byzantine Empire. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Byzantine Empire, the Rearguard of European Civilization by Edward Ford. Chapter 2 Constantine to Arcadius barbarian influence a d three thirty seven to four o eight the roman empire after the death of constantine the first gothic invasions theodosius the first internal condition of the empire arcadius rufinus eutropius and gainas defeat and death of gainas John Chrysostom and Elia Eudocia, Death of Arcadius. It is not proposed here to do more than to give the slightest possible sketch of the history of the period 337 to 395, between the death of Constantine the Great and the accession of the brothers Arcadius and Honorius. It was an epoch of considerable interest and importance but it lies outside the limits which I have laid down, arbitrarily I own. And the time which would be expended in describing the deeds of Constantius the Arian and Julian the Apostate is better employed in attempting to throw some light on the general state of the empire at this period. It is necessary to glance at the events of these years, however, in order to understand something of the circumstances which directly or indirectly, brought about the great changes of the following century. Constantine left the empire proportioned out between three sons, but by 353 the whole huge heritage had once more been concentrated in the hands of Constantius II, emperor of the East. He is chiefly noted for having broken with the orthodox standard of Christianity and having adopted the Arian heresy, which denied the divinity of Christ, and for this reason has incurred considerable obloquy. He was unamiable, harsh, and unsympathetic, as indeed his whole house appeared to have been, but was by no means devoid of the great ability which went hand in hand with their evil qualities. To him seceded in 361 that strange and, to the writer at least, pathetic figure, Julian the Apostate, and on his death in Persia in 363, after a brief interval of Jovianus, the hasty and ill-advised choice of the imperial staff, the stout soldier Valentinian I. Valentinian chose the West as his sphere of operations, and crowned his brother Valens, Emperor of the East. Valens has not had a good reputation in history, but it really seems as if, with all his faults, it was not he who was to blame for the disasters which befell the East under his rule, but bad and selfish officialdom. The Goths were now definitely settled in the regions north of the Danube and the Black Sea, the Visigoths lay spread over what had been the old Roman province of Dacia, and were steadily drawing nearer to the empire, becoming less and less of a danger, more and more of what 
we should now term a buffer state their young men enlisted freely in the roman armies and since the nation mustered more than two hundred thousand vigorous males formed a most important source of strength to the declining empire declining chiefly it must be remembered by reason of its steadily dwindling population the goths were nominally at least christians they had become cultivators and in some cases traders there certainly was no reason to believe that they were to be before long the most terrible enemies of the empire probably most men of the later fourth century would have pointed to persia as the great antagonist of rome and would have indicated the rhine the euphrates or britain as the points of danger rather than the lower danube somewhere about 210 bc if the writer's conclusions are correct the consolidation of china into a single powerful state under that giant among rulers cheng of the kingdom of qin qin chi huang ti had opposed a firm barrier to the eastward progress of the peoples of central asia prominent among these people were the huang nu a race mentioned again and again in terms of terror and respect by chinese writers chin chu huang ti defeated them in two fifteen and constructed on his northern border where nature had placed no barrier an artificial one a gigantic military frontier the great wall of china the hugest structure reckoned as mere mass and taking no account of the engineering feats involved that human hands have ever reared the result of this astounding creation of genius was as it seems perfectly clear to me to gradually force the huangnu westward that they gave way very slowly and that the gradual migration or infiltration of their hordes across the great eurasian plains took some centuries rather than generations is natural enough they were probably loath to leave the vicinity of the rich lands which had once been their raiding ground they must have had to fight every mile of their long journey westward and though this is not the place wherein to take up the question of the origin of the huns i must own that it seems curious that the romans of the fifth century should have known the terrible mongol horde which nearly made an end of their dissolving empire by a name which is almost the same as that of the nation which had terrorized china under the chow dynasty seven centuries before the hideous aspect of the mongol hordes their ferocity and bestiality seemed to have utterly cowed the fine german races with which they came in contact the ostrogoths were subjugated the visigoths in terror and despair retreated to the danube and begged the roman garrisons to let them pass after some hesitation valens assented the goths crossed the great river and were fairly in roman territory there were doubtless difficulties but none that could not be smoothed over by care and considerate treatment but care was the last thing to be expected from the greedy and unscrupulous roman officials the details may be gathered from ammianus but it must suffice here to say that the goths were literally goaded into war by treatment such as even slaves were scarce likely to endure without murmuring their patience was admirable it was not until lupicianus the scoundrelly governor of moesia actually proceeded to attempt 
the murder of the gothic cheap fritigern and some of the nobles that the long-suffering teutons took up arms in three seventy six next year they ravaged moesia and measured swords with the army of illyricum in a fierce battle at ad Salicis. and in three seventy eight they passed the balkans wasted thrace and shattered the imperial army of the east into ruin at adrianople valens was slain and with him laid the dead magistri equitum et petidum the count of the palace thirty-five generals and forty thousand officers and men the disaster was a fearful one yet the goths made no special use of it they were not a disciplined and organized force but a nation army the tens of thousands of splendid warriors were accompanied and hampered by vast crowds of non-combatants and by endless trains of heavy and clumsy wagons despite their magnificent victory they could not take adrianople and passing it by poured down the thracian promontory to constantinople only forty years after the death of constantine the prescience which had chosen byzantium as the new capital received its first justification the oncoming host of victorious warriors gazed in silent dismay upon the great city and its massive fortifications in abandoning the siege train which they had gathered for the assault retreated inland constantinople had saved itself and the empire the spaniard theodosius who by the choice of gratian emperor of the west seceded the unfortunate valens took up again the policy of conciliation but with less prospect of ultimate success since deprived of a great part of the military strength which had been at the disposal of his predecessor he held a much less commanding position the goths were settled in the illyrian provinces and the danger of the renewed hostility was averted only temporarily as it turned out by the expedient of enlisting their horsemen wholesale into the army considering that theodosius had hardly any other alternative the plan was not perhaps a bad one had he lived ten years longer it might have been a permanent success but he undoubtedly carried it too far under his system the pay of a gothic trooper was higher than that of his native comrade that is the emperor practically published the fact that the goths were better and more reliable troops than the born subjects of the empire it may have been true though i see no especial reason for thinking so but it was surely folly to admit it the goths found themselves in the tribal chiefs in many respects the rulers of the empire's destiny and their probably high opinion of themselves was greatly raised while the natives neglected and disregarded became steadily less efficient otherwise the policy had evil results in that it greatly increased the military expenditure at a time when the most careful economy in every department was urgently demanded on this subject i shall have more to say shortly but taking all the unfavorable circumstances of the time into consideration the facts remain that there was plenty of good fighting material among the peoples of the empire that the loss of revenue was hardly likely to be fatal even if fifty thousand isaurians or illyrians had been levied from the taxpayers to fill the chasm made 
in the ranks of the army by the catastrophe of adrianople that a diminution of revenue would probably have injured the empire less than the increased taxation necessary to pay the goths and that finally the success of the policy rested upon the life of theodosius a policy contrived upon such a fragile basis as human existence has but a very uncertain chance of continuance in other ways too theodosius cannot be described as in any sense an emperor of exceptional merit he was certainly an able general he was active and hard-working but he had no true conception of the needs of the times his measures were calculated rather to add to the public burdens than to relieve them and he can hardly be defended against the charge of reckless cruelty witness the shocking incident of the massacre at thessalonica he owes his title of great to his orthodoxy not to his merits as a ruler we shall meet with more than one similar instance later on the chaos which set in after his death is perhaps a good testimony to his merits but is equally his condemnation we cannot applaud a sovereign whose work in not the worst of circumstances by any means can only endure for his own lifetime theodosius left the empire to his two young sons arcadius eighteen years of age and honorius who was only ten to the former was left the east the main strength of the state to the latter the much weaker and less prosperous west and both were surrounded by a number of generals and ministers almost all of barbarian or half-barbarian origin the two young emperors were almost absolute non-entities arcadius was a thin dark nerveless stripling always seemingly half asleep and without energy even to speak honorius is best remembered by the famous story of his pet fowl roma considered as rulers there is little to choose between them both were certain to be the tools and dupes of any ambitious and unscrupulous minister the internal condition of the roman empire at the death of theodosius was full of danger but though the situation was critical an emperor like diocletian or even a mere resolute fighting man might well have retrieved it with two weak and almost idiotic boys on the throne there was perhaps little to be looked for but disaster the imperial government had for centuries been steadily tending to become more and more centralized and this tendency had been materially helped forward by the troubles of the third century the reorganization of diocletian marked an attempt to secure the advantages of decentralization by dividing the vast empire into four great regions each with its chief but the finely conceived scheme hardly survived the abdication of its author four emperors of varying blood and capacity were little likely to be able to work in harmony dissension soon broke out and ended in the accession of constantine i to supreme power constantine continued the reorganization which diocletian had initiated one feature of diocletian's system a strange one when we consider that its author was a peasant by birth was the placing of the emperor in a position of unapproachable majesty no doubt diocletian hoped thus to establish some kind of check upon the constant military revolts which threatened the public stability
he wished in short to elevate the head of the state to a position of earthly isolation and glory which should in some degree coordinate with his theoretical half-religious place in the economy of the roman world as divus augustus the disadvantage that the emperor might be so cut off from his subjects as to have slight conception of their needs and interests he does not appear to have foreseen at all events he ignored them diocletian's system elaborated by constantine made necessary a splendid and expensive court the defense of the empire against its enemies involved a huge increase in the standing army the three hundred thousand troops kept up by augustus had grown to over six hundred thousand in the time of theodosius the first while the weight of taxation was steadily on the increase the population of the empire was slowly wasting all through the first four centuries of the christian era in a society whose normal condition is that of intermittent war it is clear that the small freeholder is at a great disadvantage beside his large holding neighbor who can till his fields with hired or slave labor in time of hostilities while he himself must leave his farm more or less uncared for if both be spoiled by an enemy the greater proprietor retains the advantage since he can utilize his greater means to recuperate in course of time the smallholder is crowded or wasted out of existence this is little better than a truism it has been so often demonstrated that i confine myself to repeating it as early as one hundred and fifty b c italy was in a serious condition from depopulation owing to the above cause and reformers again and again made desperate attempts to check the evil which were wrecked upon the bitter opposition of the great landowners under the empire great numbers of the italian people were state paupers residing in rome and maintained by state ministrations which absorbed a considerable portion of the revenue when constantinople was founded its people also were supported by state grants of food the condition was a terrible one but it is fair to remember that it was largely due in the first case to the grasping selfishness of great landowners who would not allow their poor neighbors a chance to work and live immorality of a bad type was distressingly common the prevalence of slavery fostered self-indulgence and cruelty infanticide was frequently practiced the strenuous efforts of the emperors produced for a while a certain promise of better things there was a considerable resuscitation of free labor but the necessities of the fist soon involved the free laborer in the toils of the caste system of the administration which chained every man to his craft and in the third century he was already a serf immorality the emperors could not check many of them indeed were guilty of it and partly from economic partly from moral causes the population was stationary at best probably diminishing while the conditions were against its recovery after any disaster the great plague of the reign of marcus aurelius was the beginning of the end and the anarchy of the third century helped it forward in the fourth century roman society had become stereotyped into caste rigidly defined controlled by an all-pervading bureaucracy and ground down by grievous and ever more grievous taxation 
the principal source of revenue appears to have been the land tax which varied from a twentieth to a fifth of the value of the annual production of the soil and was usually about a tenth not a light burden at the time all non-land-holding freemen were liable to a heavy capitation tax constantine confronted with the deficit closed it by imposing a class tax on senators which was probably defensible and a tax on all receipts which necessarily pressed cruelly on the poor and was repealed by anastasius amid general rejoicings the local assembly curia was collectively responsible for the amounts of the district taxes as fixed by the imperial officials if any member of the curia became bankrupt the sum still had to be made up and as it was too often impossible to wring it out of the poverty-stricken serfs the other members were forced to contribute the results were disastrous at first the curiales acted in collusion with the provincial governors and occasionally escaped at the expense of the exchequer but the ever-growing strictness of the tax collectors gradually closed this outlet of evasion and the wretched notables tied to their estates and chairs as much as the serf was chained to his plot and his hut had recourse to any and every means to escape their crushing responsibilities the principle of taxation was simply to collect in the treasury as much as possible of the circulating medium other considerations were ignored naturally the result was lack of capital consequent decrease in the means of life and the acceleration of the decline of the population taxpayers were sternly forbidden to bear arms lest there should be a decline of revenue and the army when the supply of cap children failed was recruited more and more from barbarians until theodosius i put the capstone on its denationalization by swamping it with goths while he ground the wretched taxpayers still more into the dust to provide his new favorites with high pay the curiales were landowners but not of noble or senatorial rank they represented the upper middle class to use the clumsy modern term below them were a few freemen save merchants and tradesmen the agricultural laborers were almost all serfs or slaves at its best the curial system was bad for the curia being composed of the richest landowners of the district was not identified in its interests with the smaller proprietors and the traders the small holders disappeared first but at last the curiales disintegrated under the ruthless pressure the nobles probably evaded their obligation as far as possible in any case they had the best chance of survival and by the time of valentinian the third the conditions in the west were appalling the population was practically reduced to beggary vandal piracy had bankrupted many traders barbarian ravages had ruined the small and medium landowners but there was a group of nobles with incomes ranging from sixty thousand pounds up to two hundred thousand pounds a year comment is needless these fared better the economic conditions had never been so bad the trading classes were much larger and more influential than in the agricultural west serfage was perhaps less widespread finally the country in asia at least was untouched by war the east also was blessed with stronger rulers 
so while the west broke into fragments the east survived and had enough of health within it to be able to recuperate not once but several times to the astonishment of mankind the history of the reign of arcadius is sufficiently dreary but is on the whole less gloomy than that of his brother's rule over the west he was at first under the domination of his ambitious minister rufinus but he soon fell under the influence of a eunuch eutropius and a gothic general gainas instigated by them he espoused the half-barbarian daughter of the frank chief bauto instead of maria the daughter of rufinus and the latter was soon assassinated at a review by order of his enemies gainas next in 401 ousted and murdered eutropius in spite of the intrepid defence of the fallen minister made by the famous john patriarch of constantinople whom the admiring populace called chrysostom the golden-mouthed meanwhile the illyrian provinces were in wild disorder there alaric the famous visigoth king was in open revolt the pretext of the rising was arrears of pay to the federate the barbarian troops of the army but there is little doubt that alaric's ambition was the main cause stilicho the great vandal magister militum of the west checked him but with a curious torturous policy which so often fills us in doubt of his loyalty to the empire concluded peace without crushing his rival and procured for him the post of magister militum per illyricum for five years alaric remained comparatively quiescent if by no means idle then in 401 while gainas was plotting against eutropius he invaded italy with his operations there his final success and his death we are not immediately concerned possibly he had concerted measures with gainas who was now all-powerful in the east but gainas was not alaric nor had he the great host of splendid fighters which followed the visigoth the people of constantinople growing enraged at the insolence of the germans broke out into resistance they closed the gates cutting off gainas and the troops outside from those within and then turning savagely on the latter killed over seven thousand of them gainas now declared open war on his master but he was met by fravita a fine specimen of the hard-fighting rough honest heathen teuton fravita stood by the son of his friend and lord theodosius defeated gainas and drove him across the danube where he was killed by uldes king of the huns who were now in force in dacia the rest of the reign of arcadius passed in comparative peace except for continual trouble between john chrysostom and the empress elia eudocia neither side appears to great advantage the empress was impulsive hot-tempered vindictive with the fierceness of her barbarian nature certainly vain and frivolous but does not appear to have been fundamentally vicious the patriarch was a man of saintly life disinterested brave universally beloved but rash and impulsive and most violent in speech he assailed the imperial lady to her face as she sat in sancta sophia to be called jezebel was more than she could endure yet her violent impulses were as much good as bad 
and she seems to have made repeated attempts to live on good terms with a saintly but impracticable priest a little gentleness might have converted the lovely hot-tempered frank into a passionately faithful friend but john's invective only grew fiercer as time went on he had no tact and as it seems to the writer no great share of christian charity for comparatively slight faults the end came in 404 eudocia now utterly reckless instigated her inert spouse into having the patriarch arrested and banished his patience under the hardships of his exile was wonderful and there was deep pathos in his lonely death but no one except religious enthusiasts devoid of judgment can help wishing that he had been able to control his violent impulses a little the good which he would have accomplished would have far exceeded that which he was actually able to do great as it undoubtedly was the plea has been advanced by kingsley that it was the utter badness and rottenness of the times that made the great contemporary christian fathers so intolerant and often barbarous it may be so but it is a terrible indictment of christianity that in four centuries it had done so little as a fact the fourth and fifth centuries were a period of steady moral advance there were both bad and good emperors after diocletian but no one of the type of nero or caracalla theodosius i conducted a veritable crusade against sexual immorality the roman of a d four o four was decidedly more civilized than the roman of four b c the times may have been bad but they were better than of old in the moral sense at least paganism existed but it was moribund christianity may have had to fight hard but it had done and was to do splendid and deathless work it was not the wonderful religion that was at fault nor yet the times it was the violent ignorance intolerance and dissension of narrow christian ecclesiastics that retarded progress saint cyril of alexandria was almost certainly morally guilty of the murder of the pagan philosopher hypatia and his action does not appear to have been generally disapproved of chrysostom was a man of a far higher order than cyril yet he too was the slave of his prejudices terribly devoid of the true spirit of christianity eudocia did not long survive her enemy needless to say she is supposed to have died in deep remorse and misery the opponent of st john chrysostom could have no other fate she died in childbirth in september four o five on may first four o eight arcadius whose affection for her seems to have been the single positive emotion of his otherwise inert existence followed her his last arrangement showed a degree of wisdom which he had never yet manifested he appointed anthemius the praetorian prefect a man of high ability and entire disinterestedness regent for his little son theodosius he was laid beside his wife in the church of the holy apostles End of section 2